the class is called the Kabbalah of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, I guess that it seems like the, the title itself of the class needs some explanation. What does that mean, the Kabbalah of the Hebrew alphabet? Is there a Kabbalah of the ABCs? Is there a Kabbalah of Spanish? Like, what does that mean that there's a Kabbalah of the Hebrew alphabet? When you, when, uh, let, let, let me ask you, when you saw the title for the first time, Kabbalah of the Hebrew alphabet, was it, did, did it seem like an unusual title? Was the title itself surprising to you? Like, what does he mean, the Kabbalah of the Hebrew alphabet? How does an alphabet have Kabbalah? Was that, was the title itself somewhat of a surprise to you? All right, so it seems like you've, you've heard of it, Bob. I see you're shaking your head. Okay, so I guess it didn't, it didn't maybe come across as such a shock, but okay, Bonnie's raising. So there is, there is something, by the way, if you want to ask a question, you'll have to unmute, I muted everyone. So if you're asking a question, you'll have to unmute yourself. Um, the concept of an alphabet having a Kabbalah to it, I mean, the, the Kabbalah, when, when we hear the word Kabbalah, the study of Kabbalah is the study of Jewish mysticism, the study of the esoteric depth behind Torah concepts, Torah ideas. So the idea of having a Kabbalah of the Hebrew alphabet is acknowledging that even before you open up a Chumash, which is the Torah, even before you open up the Talmud, when you just look at the alphabet itself, the alphabet has a deeper significance. The alphabet has a deeper meaning. And because of that, if I would ask you, well, what is the primary, what is the primary source of learning about Jewish mysticism? Well, you might say, you know, learning this book, learning that book, or even learning the, the interpretations of the Torah, to which I will tell you that really one can learn the depth of Judaism from studying the alphabet alone. That means the alphabet itself is, it's... It, contains in it so many teachings that get us to the core of Jewish spirituality that what that that that, that is a, a, an area of study unto itself is just to study Judaism through the alphabet which is a, which is a, an, an amazing concept to think about it when we're used to studying we're used to uh, ideas studying ideas which are conveyed to us through full ideas through sentences and the idea that a letter, one letter, can communicate to us the depth of Judaism captured in a letter itself. Not a book, not a paragraph, not an essay, not a blog, not a post. A letter. One letter can be an entire class, an entire lesson. Now, I've designated five classes to it. The truth is I have so much material on this that I can go a full year. I didn't know how it would fly. Um, and I know that it's for us, for this for this group, it's worked well to do short series. So we're going to cram and I'm going to select some of the material and present it to you. And hopefully we'll be able to cover the material in, in, in five classes. Maybe we'll need a sixth. But there's so much more. What we're doing in this series is really just scratching the surface. Bonnie, did you have a question? Nancy? No, you, you asked before, did we think it was um, unusual doing Kabbalah yeah. the alphabet? And my comment to Nancy was, Oy, they can find meaning in everything. That's right. Exactly. Right. And not only that, yeah. the, Kabbalah, the Kabbalah of the alphabet is going to go beyond just the alphabet. It's going to sure. go. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to go into. Um, it's going to go into the Kabbalah of numbers as well. Not all the numbers, but some of the numbers.
Okay, so that means what we're going to be doing together is learning Torah lessons. But instead of Torah lessons being built upon stories or concepts or ideas, these are going to be Torah lessons that are built on the letters alone. It's important to remember that the, the, the Hebrew language is called Lashon HaKodesh. Lashon HaKodesh means the holy tongue. Lashon HaKodesh is the original language. The Aleph Bet resembles at many points, not every single letter and not every single set of letters, but throughout the Aleph Bet, we see many similarities to the English language. So for example, uh, we, we go by the ABCs, so it's Aleph Bet Gimel, or ABCD, and we have Aleph Bet Gimel Dalid. so you have three of the first four letters are almost identical to the English language. Uh, once you get um, past the tenth letter, when you get to Lamid Mem Nun, Lamid Mem Nun sounds a lot like LMN, and they line up in, ter in terms of the number of the alphabet, they line up perfectly. And this happens many times throughout the Hebrew alphabet that you'll see it lining up with the English alphabet. Now, uh, the English alphabet is not based on Lashon Kodesh. I believe that it's based on Latin. Is that true? I think it's based on Latin. But that means that if you trace it far back enough, that means that all languages, I, I, I shouldn't say all languages, but at least the languages that we use, the Latin-based languages, are also based on Lashon Kodesh. But we believe that this is the original tongue. This is the, the language that was spoken for the first um, 20 generations of mankind before the Tower of Babel came along and God babelized the world. God split the world into 70 languages. Everybody was speaking this language, and because of that, we believe that this language has in it inherent depth and inherent holiness. It is through these letters that God created the world. It is through these letters that God created the world. Ask me a question, or unmute yourself, and ask me what do I, what, what do I mean by that, because that line should confuse you. What do you mean by? Somebody have a oh, Bonnie, you have a question. Yes, what's your question? Yeah. What did, What does it mean? What does it mean? Right. What does it mean that God created the world with letters? Does God speak? Does God have conversation? Yet the Torah does say when God created the world, He created it by speaking the world by Yoma. God said, "Let there be light." God said this. So, but God doesn't speak at least not in the language that we're used to. So what does it mean when we say that God created the world with the Hebrew letters? The answer is exactly, exactly, that's exactly the point. The Hebrew letters themselves are so much deeper than just the sounds that the human mouth makes. A B in the English language is nothing more than, a, than a, a tool that we as human beings use because if we did not have the letter B, you would not be able to pronounce my last name and then you would call me Rabbi Uxbaum. And that would be awkward. So B is nothing more than a, a, a contrived by human beings as a way to communicate the sound B. It's nothing more than that. The B doesn't represent anything unless, unless you happen to be building 
a set of IKEA furniture. In which case, what does the B represent? Maybe it represents a door. Maybe it represents a shelf. But if you go into IKEA, and you, and, and again, I'm sure that for every single, I don't know, my guess is for IKEA that every single set of furniture that they have probably has a different format. But let's just say, <coughs> maybe not actually, let's just say that no matter what set of IKEA furniture you bought, a A is always the same piece. A B is always the same piece. And let's just say that, that any piece of IKEA furniture can be built with one of with, with, with any combination of the 26 letters of the alphabet. That's all you needed. You needed 26 different pieces, and each piece was labeled with a letter. And then you walked into IKEA and you said, "Listen, I need to get. I I, I need one D. I need three Fs. I need an X, and I need an I, and, and I need an O. And I'm having a problem getting my O onto my X." Can, can, can you help me, please? Because the L and the M don't seem to line up. So if someone didn't know what IKEA was, they'd be like, oh my, what are you talking about? But for IKEA man, IKEA says, well, you're speaking my language. Oh, because what does L mean? L means that piece, and M means that piece. And that's why L and M can go together. And an L, and an L could, doesn't only have to go to an M, it could also go with a P. So in IKEA language... The, the letter represents something, it represents a, a, a foundation, a piece, something that we can speak about where the letter is not about the letter. The letter is about the piece that's behind it. And that's true in the Jewish language as well, except what's behind these letters is a spiritual energy, is a divine energy. It's a godly light. This is something that only if your, your, your brain is fine-tuned to the Kabbalistic uh, language uh, will, this, will this sound like it makes any sense. But if you're somewhat familiar with Kabbalah that speaks about divine energy, that speaks about divine light, and now we say that every single aspect of God's influence, his light, his energy into the world is given a label, but, and, and that label is a letter, suddenly now we understand, oh, one second, the olive bed is not B for Bucksbaum. It's B for whatever B is supposed to represent. And therefore, when the Torah says God spoke the world into existence, and we say that God used the Hebrew language Suddenly, what we're trying to say is, oh, this is not, we're not talking about letters over here. We're talking about divine influence. We're talking about energy. We're talking about spiritual manifestations, which for us, we're going to take that and turn that into a language of Torah because Torah itself speaks on many layers. Like we've said many times in the context of this class, right? If the, if the Torah says, Abraham went to the store. So Abraham, that sentence, Abraham went to the store in the Torah, that sentence is understood at many levels. On the level of B for Buxbaum, Abraham went to the store. Abraham is a human being who went to a place called the store. That's very simple because letters create words, words create sentences, sentences give over information and ideas. Right? But on the level of B is not for a letter used for Bucksbaum. B represents something. So then everything in that sentence, Abraham went to the store, can just be broken up to the letters that are contained. 
And then the message that that sentence is giving over isn't about a guy named Abraham who went to the store, but it's a combination of all the divine energies that go into the letters of that sentence that are now being communicated to us a much deeper idea. Does that make sense? So dog could be a dog that barks, but dog is also D-O-G. And again, I'm using the English language. This is not true with the English language, right? But again, I go into Ikea and I say, hey, can I have a dog? I need a dog. So they're not a pet store. They're like, oh, oh, you need a D and an O and a G. A D and O and a G, hmm, that means that you must be building a blah, 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 right? Because that has that combination of D-O-G. So therefore, in the Torah, when we see, we understand the Torah by virtue of the letters and what those letters represent. So therefore, now in Kabbalah, the Torah is broken down. The Torah isn't viewed as sentences on the surface level, but they're viewed as, as what's being informed to us through the letters within that sentence. Okay, I hope that that makes sense. Let me pause and let me just give you a moment to take a deep breath to process that and also to ask any questions um, if anything needs to be clarified with that. Any questions about what I said thus far? Okay. And again, jump in at any time. If we had mastered Kabbalah, and we were all Kabbalistic masters. And again, those who have been learning, we've been learning together, we all have a nice footing into the door, but we're certainly far from being Kabbalistic masters. But if we were, then this class would be completely different because we would already have a mastery of Kabbalah. We would already have a mastery of the interplay between all sorts of divine energy. And because of that, we can easily go through the alphabet and say, oh, Aleph is this, Bez is that, and, and Gimel is that. And we can label what we already know, but we're not on that level. So for us, what we want to do through this, this, because again, we're not obviously giving a full Kabbalistic background and then labeling things, that would be, that's beyond the scope of this class. But that being said, part of understanding the letters is to be able to see what those letters represent so that when we see them in various places in the Torah or in our prayers, we understand more of the depth behind what we're seeing. So when you make a blessing and you see specific words and how those words form, and again, we're not going to be learning the entire Hebrew language in every single word, but we are throughout the series going to be highlighting specific words to show how the lessons that are contained in these letters manifest themselves through, the, through, through these words. You'll see what I mean shortly. So over here for us, what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand the depth behind the letters. So when we, so first of all, we'll learn the lessons themselves. The lessons are, themselves are fascinating, but also we'll build a relationship with those letters that when we see them in certain contexts, we'll have a deeper understanding of that. I want to share my screen with you right now. And hopefully you saw this that I shared with you. I shared everyone with everyone this PDF. Um, and if you don't have it in front of you, I'll share it with you on my screen.
take a look over here. This is the very, very first verse in the Torah. And maybe you're familiar with it. Bereshis, Bereshit, means in the beginning, Bara Elokim, God created, Eit HaShamayim, the Eit HaAretz, the heavens and the earth. There is a word in there, Eit, which is, which one could translate as the, but it doesn't really mean anything. It's a word that's used many, many, many times again and again and again in the Torah. Every few verses you see it. It doesn't really have a great English translation. When, the, when, when, when you see that in the Torah, it really means we're about to say a noun. It's, it's a word that's used before you say a noun, is the word ace. But Kabbalists teach that really you can cut off this sentence right here with what I'm highlighting. Well, I'm sorry, it highlighted more than I wanted to. But you can cut off the sentence with just these four words. Bereshis, in the beginning, bara elokim, God created ace. Ace is aleph and a tuf. Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew language. Tuf is the last letter of the Hebrew language. So the very first aspect of creation, before there was a creation itself, God created the alphabet which means God created the divine energy, God created the tools by which the world would be created. And through the Aleph, through Taf, through the Ace, God used these as tools to create the world. So the Aleph bed in this context, these are tools by which the world is created. I'm going to skip that, that last quote for a moment. Now I want to show you here. When we're trying, this is the Aleph. When we're trying to study the Hebrew alphabet, how do we analyze it? How are we supposed to, to move beyond the surface and get into what the depth behind it is? So for this, we want to look, I, I gave you over here the phonetic sound, just because I know not everyone is, is, um, is that familiar or maybe a little bit out of shape when it comes to knowing their Hebrew. So the phonetic sound, even though that also plays in, but we're not going to be discussing the phonetic sound. We're not going to be analyzing that too much in this class. But what we want to ask ourselves is, the names of, these, of the names of the letters, why does it have this name? Every letter, the name Aleph, Aleph actually means something. It's the, 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 the word Aleph, not the letter, the word Aleph. Aleph has a, has a meaning. So that's always going to be the first clue as to what the letter is coming to teach when I see what the meaning is. What, is. what does it mean? Aleph means to teach. It means master, prince, or chief. It means the thousand. So that's going to be the first clue what the letter is all about. <coughs> the second one, and this is going to be a big one, is the numerical value. We've been learning together long enough that you know by now, and I'll say it again, the Torah doesn't only speak a language of letters, it speaks a language of numerology. And often there are words that can sound completely different, but we'll link them together based on their numeric value. So it's very important to understand letters, what their numerical value is, because for the most part, if you see a number once in the Torah, you'll see it again in the Torah. The numbers that the Torah chooses to reveal are not random. So when you see 30, this is how the Kabbalist thinks. When the Kabbalist sees the number 30, this person had 30 kids, 
Okay, I, I don't know of anyone that had 30 kids, right? Okay, Bonnie, I might get there. I don't know. We're, we're working on it. I'm not sure. But uh, I don't know anyone in the Torah that had 30 kids. But let's just say, and the Torah says, Yamgul had 30 kids. The Kabbalist thinks 30. What does 30 represent? Where else do I have 30 in the Torah? And is starting to think of different places that 30 comes up and understands what the Torah is communicating by that. Because it's not random that he had 30. If he had 30 kids, again, no one had 30 kids. If he had 30 kids, that's connected to every other 30 in the Torah. It's not random that Yaakov, that Jacob had 12 sons, that the Jewish people are made up of 12 tribes. You, you think it's just a coincidence that, the, that the, the, the amount of Jacob's sons, which is 12, is equal to the months of the year, which is also equal to the middle blessings in Shemona Esrei in the Amidah? You think it's just a coincidence? Oh, they all happen to be 12. Or that those 12 turn into 13 because Joseph has another two children? And 13 also happens to be the way the months of the year also break themselves up into 13 because Adar, the month of Adar, can be split during during a leap year. And that later on, the rabbis added an additional middle blessing of, of the Amidah. So now there's, there's 13 blessings. And that and, and, and that a girl is bat mitzvah at age 12 and a boy is bat mitzvah at age 13? Is that just a coincidence? You have all these 12? Obviously not. Obviously, all of these things are woven together. So we need to understand the numerical value of the number. Okay. I see, Bob, you got to go. Take care. We'll see you soon. We'll see. I'll send you the recording so you'll get the rest of it. Okay. The next thing that we're going to look at is the shape. The shape of the letter is also going to play a major role, as, we're, as we, we'll see soon. Um... How do we analyze the shape of a letter? In two ways. Either we'll analyze the shape of a letter because a letter might be a composite of two other letters, in which case we'll have to define the relationship between that letter and, and, and the other letters. Or the shape might resemble something. You might look at a letter and you might say, hey, you know what? That letter looks a lot like a house. That letter looks a lot like a hook. That letter looks a lot like whatever. So the, just the way, if it resembles something, that will also give us a clue. Next, we want to look at the significant words behind that. If I have to look at what words, when I think about this letter, what words immediately come to mind? It's usually going to be the words that are the most profound, that are the most used. Why is this the first letter in that word? The positioning. Why is it positioned that way? Why is, why is this letter next to that letter? When we take all of these clues together, the meaning, the value, the shape, significant words, positioning. We take all those clues, put them all together. Now we'll be able to, as best as we can, and again, we're, we're, we're just scratching the surface in the series, but as best as we could weave all of these ideas together, we'll understand, oh, now I get it. Now I understand an Aleph. That's why it means that. That's why it has that value. That's why it has that shape. That's why it has those significant words. That's why it's positioned that way. Oh, now it all makes sense. <coughs> we bring all of these things together, and now we have a way, we have a representation. We can understand the deeper meaning behind that letter. So again, as you can see, um, this can take a very, very long time. We're going to move through it 
a little bit quicker because I want to keep your interest and sometimes when things take so long just the length of it makes it hard to follow so sometimes it's better to just learn a complete unit a little bit quicker and then after we're done through your questions on your own through our further study we'll be able to go through these a little bit deeper but I want what 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 this is really just sort of this class is going to be an overview at least the beginning to one of the most profound subjects let's take a pause and let me um, open myself up if anyone has any questions that they would like to share right now we just want to take a deep breath and think about what we just said for a moment also any questions Is it making sense? Okay, good. Okay, and those of you out there watching the recording, first of all, thank you for watching the recording, and uh, you can send me any messages privately if you have any questions, or if I or if I've lost you by this point. Um, I want to show you right now, and and I know we have all different commands of of, of how well you're familiar with Hebrew, so I'll, I'll I'll walk you through this, but as I share my screen. I want you to take a look. We, we, I, we've mentioned this once before when we were still together at the JCC all the way back then when human beings still were able to be near each other. Um, but, but I mentioned this idea once. And that is that as you look through the alphabet, as you look through the Hebrew alphabet, immediately there'll be words that will jump out. I mean, even just the formation of the letters themselves, there are words that it spells, not all of them, not all the letters are part of a word, but there are certain sections um, in the alphabet where you'll see a word will jump out. Now, if you're starting to read the alphabet and you have Aleph, which is a silent letter, it's kind of like an A, you have the Bet, which is the B sound, you have the Gimel, which is the G sound, and you have the Dalit, which is the D sound. So these are the first four letters of the alphabet. Now, if you take these four letters, you will immediately see right off the cuff that there is a word that's being spelled out, not with the Aleph, but move past the Aleph and you see right over here, I'll, I'll highlight it if I can on my screen. I wonder if I can, here, let's see if this will work, a little marker here. Um, let's try this. I'm not sure if I'm going to know how to erase this afterwards, but here we go. So the bays and the gimel and the dalit, aside from being really cool letters, but it actually spells a word. Anybody know what word that spells? The word that that spells is beged. And it's the B sound, the G sound, and the D sound. As a reminder, in the Hebrew language, the Hebrew language, their letters are not used as vowels. Is only consonant sounds. Vowels are done by the dots that are under it. Right, so there's no, you're not going to have, so if, if you wanted to um, translate something, if you were trying to just turn the, letter, the letters of a Hebrew word into English by just using the consonant sounds, you're not going to have any vowels because the vowels are all done by dots under the word. So over here, this word is beged, and the, the translation of the word beged is a garment. Beged actually means something else. It has two, two definitions. One is a garment. The other definition is to rebel. To rebel. If a person is bugged, it means that they've rebelled. 
Now, why would it be, what do you think of, why is it that the word for garment and the word for rebel is the same word? Why should those be the same word? You can unmute yourself if you'd like to take a stab at the answer. Is clothing some sort of rebellion? Well, for those of you who follow the Torah portions, actually, historically, it is. If you remember, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden did not wear any clothing. They were naked. They didn't need clothing. They, 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 they were, I don't want to say they were non-sexual beings, because they were sexual beings, but that wasn't, um, that, that wasn't their consciousness. They weren't attached to that. They didn't need that. They were so, they, they, their, their primary location of their consciousness was a spiritual consciousness. If they wanted to engage in any sort of sexual behavior, they came down to that. They entered into their the, the physical realm as guests to participate in that. They viewed their bodies as vehicles, but their consciousness, their identity was linked to their soul, not to their body. So they didn't need clothing because, again, the reason that we, we what, I mean, the purpose of our clothing Right, number one, keep us warm. Well, Gan Eden was the temperature was perfect. Garden of Eden, the temperature was perfect to protect us from bringing about sexual arousal. They didn't have to struggle with that, and self-expression. They didn't have to struggle with that either because they were soul beings. They 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 looked into one another's souls, so they had no purpose for clothing. When they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they became locked into their body or they were in their body, but they became locked into their physical consciousness. Their body became their mode of consciousness. Now suddenly they had to deal with taking care of, you know, issues of sexual arousal as well as, as, as projecting their identity. So clothing is a sign of their rebellion. That being said, in many ways, one could use clothing as a way to rebel against their true identity. I want you to think of me a certain way. Right? I want you to think I'm a great rabbi. You know, it happens to be, I don't behave like a great rabbi. But you don't know that. You just know that I've got a really nice looking beard. And that I dress, I play the part very well. So I'm rebelling against my true identity. I'm projecting myself in a certain way, which may or may not be true. Right? But at, at the core, the reason that those two things are the same, that clothing are called a rebellion, is because it goes back to that original rebellion. Yeah, Nancy. Well, we use clothing to protect and to cover and to, um, you know, as a costume to, you know, I want to be like something or against something else. If I dress a certain way, people will accept me or, or deny me because of how I'm dressed. Correct, correct. And that could be a good thing or it could be a bad thing. Right, absolutely. So the, the, it, it becomes bad when I use clothing to try to give up the impression of something that I'm not, in which case it's concealing me. However, I could also use clothing and say, no, I want to be true. I want my clothing. That, that was the beauty of the program that we did that was based on this concept of dress your truth. Right, Dress your truth is a powerful idea. A powerful idea, and that is that that a certain person, their clothing, depending on, on the, the, the personality, and depending on who you are, your clothing should express 
really how you view yourself and really how you want to be. That should be the story that your clothing can, can tell. So clothing has the ability to conceal and to reveal, which is why in the original Kabbalah series, a year ago, over a year ago at the JCC, the first principle of Kabbalah that we lay down, that we established, is that the universe, the physical universe, is God's clothing. The same way that we use our clothing to both conceal and reveal. Conceal what I don't want you to see. Reveal what I do want you to see. The universe, the physical universe, which means the actual atoms and material and the matter, as well as the events that happen in this plane, in this sphere of universe, physical universe, are the clothing of God. Because it both conceals God in the sense that you can go through an entire life and say, I don't, I don't see God anywhere. Or it can reveal God if you pay very close attention. Two scientists study the exact same thing. Right? They come to a new breakthrough and one of them, they're sitting at the same table. They have the same knowledge. And one of them says, see, I told you God doesn't exist. And the other one says... I just discovered God. A child is born and one person looks and says, wow, look how beautiful the X chromosomes and the Y chromosomes came together. And the other one says, wow, look, a soul was put into this world. So we could literally see the same thing and the very same things that conceal God also reveal God because it's like clothing. It's how you look at it. Now God himself, when we think about God, we think about God as complete oneness. On the level of God, if you can, if you can uh, beam yourself out of this universe and transport yourself to the highest spiritual realm, at that level, there's no concealing, there's no revealing, there's just godliness. There's only God. That means if you had to put a number, a number that related to God himself, what number would that be? Obviously, the number one, right? Because at the level of God, there's only oneness. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Lokeinu, Hashem Echad. What do we mean when we say that? Shema Yisrael, listen, Israel. Hashem Elokeinu, God who manifests himself in this universe. Elokeinu means he's the overall power. So God who manifests himself in this world, which is a world where God is both concealed and revealed. Sometimes more concealed, sometimes more revealed. At the highest spiritual level, Hashem Echad, God is one. Same God that rewards, punishes. And even though in this world, one seems good, reward seems good, punishment seems bad, if I can peel back that clothing, if I can peel back the layers, at the core, at the essence, God is one. All of life is learning how to see the oneness of God to the best of our ability, even though we can't as human beings. Because to us, we live in a world that where certain things feel like they're good and certain things feel like they're bad because in a narrow window, that's the way they feel. That's God concealing himself, saying, I'm going to trick you. I'm going to make certain things feel good and certain things feel bad from your perception. So you're going to feel like God is in a good mood, God's in a bad mood. It must be God has two moods. 
God is happy, God is angry. Must be God has different moods, right? That's duplicity. But if we really, if we're able to take off those glasses and put back on the glasses of Adam and Eve, before they ate, before they fell from their consciousness, then they look at the good and bad and they be like, well, what are you talking about? Good and bad? You have two words for that? It's the same thing. It's, it's one thing. It's all God's goodness. So we wear glasses that deceive us. That's why they ate from the tree of good and bad. Because they're like, good and bad? What are you talking about, good and bad? There's no such thing. It's only God. Eat from the tree. Oh, that's what you meant. They, they didn't get it beforehand. Because they were too plugged into God. Does that make sense? So now, let's take a look over here at the Aleph. Over here, the Aleph, because it's numerical value one, that means that it's going to represent God. Godliness. We're going to define that a little bit more shortly. But if you take a look for a moment at just the meaning of the word. Okay, Aleph means to teach. But here's the one that I want to focus on right now. Aluf. Someone is Aluf. Aluf is a master, a prince, a chief, a general. Aluf is the guy standing at the top. The boss. Well, that makes sense. I would definitely use that word to describe God. It has a value of one. That would be a good number to label God. God's the only being that can be described as one. Even though there's one Shlomo Buxbaum, there's just one me, but I am a composite of many things. I, 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 I'm a body, I'm a soul, I'm emotions, I'm good, I'm bad, I'm happy, I'm sad. So I'm a very complicated, I'm a very complex being. I'm not one. There's one of me as opposed to more of me, but I myself don't embody oneness. I'm not consistent. God is the only thing that encompasses everything. So that would be a great way to describe God. In fact, the word for one is Echad. Echad begins with the letter Aleph. Parents, Abba is father, and Ima is mother. Both begin with the letter Aleph. Or, which is light. Wouldn't that be a good way to describe God? The way we describe God and how God, not God himself, God himself is not light, is beyond that. But when we talk about a spiritual light, we talk about how God interacts with the world. We're talking about divine energy is described in Kabbalah as light. Adon, master, all these words begin with Aleph. So we have one, we have Aluf, the master. We have all of these words that all are ways to describe the beginning point of something. Echad, one, Abba, father, Ima, mother, or light, Adon, master. Aleph now becomes the perfect letter in which we can say this is the letter that represents, this is as high as you can go. Now again, you cannot put a letter on God. Why? Because God is completely omnipresent, completely omniscient. God is bigger than any any way to, you can't lock God into any one specific tool. 
Remember that all of the letters, all of the energies that are represented by these letters are all things that God created. So we're never talking about God, but if you talk about the highest place of spirituality, the highest godly experience, the highest experience of God is referred to in Kabbalah as the Or Ein Sof. I'll translate those words. Or means light. Ein Sof. Ein Sof is, it has no end. It's incomprehensible. It's incomprehensible. The light is too powerful. That's the highest, closest experience of God. The Or Ein Sof. What better letter would you use to describe this divine energy than the letter Aleph? By the way, I said we're not going to get too much into phonetic sounds, but for Aleph we will. What sound does Aleph make? None. Isn't that beautiful? Before you can speak a word, it's just a sound. It's not even. It's not even. Because the Or Ein Sof, this godly energy, if we can strip away ourselves from our physical bodies, if we can get beyond, if we can get to the core and directly experience God's light, we don't have a sound for that. At best, we have a letter for it. But even the letter itself can't make a sound because it's so vast, it's so big. And because of that, Kabbalah teaches that when God wanted to create a world, this goes back to our first Kabbalah series ever. When God wanted to create a world, God said, if I create something that's so close to me, what will happen? There's not going to be any free will. This person, this, this being will not be able to function as an independent being because the light of God, the orange self light of God is too powerful. And because of that, in the first Kabbalah class that we ever did together, I said that what did God do? God created a series of filters, a series of ways to block out the godly light so that the universe can be far enough away or filtered enough from God's light that Shlomo Buxbaum can feel like an individual. I can go throughout my day and say, I have decisions to make. I'm making a difference. I can give charity. I can do a mitzvah. I can hurt somebody. I can make the world a better place. I can make the world a worse place. I have identity. I have identity because I'm filtered. God is filtered out enough that I can feel like an individual. Those filters have many names. One of those filters are called olamot, spiritual worlds. But another way to refer to those filters are bigadim, clothing. So now we go back to the Aleph Bet, and we see that the beginning of the Aleph Bet is telling a story of creation. At first, it was just Aleph. At first, it was just Ar Ein Sof. At first, it was just godly light. But it was too powerful. So what did God do? God needed to create a series of clothing, Beged, a series of clothing in order to filter out that light. And the same way, today I'm wearing a white shirt, so you think I'm a great rabbi. And tomorrow, I'm going to be wearing a t-shirt that says Harley Davidson. right? And I'm going to be wearing a mitpachar, I'm wearing a bandana over my head, and I'm going to shave this side of my beard. So I'm going to have a goatee and a bandana and a Harley Davidson t-shirt. And you're going to see me like, oh, he's a Harley guy. He's a tough guy. You're going to be afraid of me. Right? What? 
same guy, same person. You know how uh, in uh, in uh, that what, what what is it called? Um, Breaking Bad, right? How the guy's like, you know, the first episode, he's like such a nerd, right? He's got, you know, his bushy hair and his beard, and he's kind of like a nerdy guy. And then he shaves his head, and he shaves the side, and he's got this goatee, and suddenly he's got the bald goatee look, right? And now suddenly he's a tough guy. It's just hair. It's a baguette. God says, listen, if you're too close to the R, you will never be able to function individually. But I'm going to put you in the world, and the world is going to be a beged, a Beis Gimel Dalet. It's going to be a beged. It's going to conceal the original or the original light. And because of that, you'll be able to function. Okay, so that's the first lesson of the Aleph Bet. Let's stop over here. Next week, we're going to go a little bit deeper into the Beis Gimel and the Dalet, but I first wanted you to understand the overall structure. As we're going to see next week, really from Aleph through Yud, is really one story being told. Aleph through Yud is one set of letters. They're all the single letters until Yud becomes plural. Yud is numerical value 10. One really leads to the other. It's one story. It's what happens after the Begit, after God puts the Begit, after he puts the garment into place. And how the garment slowly through the hay, Vav, Zayin, Ches, Pes, and Yud, until it builds itself back, it reaches back to God. The next set of letters are going to be Kaf through Tzadi. Those are going to be the plural letters of the, the tens. And that those are going to not necessarily be as interrelated as the first ten. And then the last set is going to be Kuf, Reishin, and Tuf. Those sort of have their own feeling to it. So we'll see that. But really, each one of the letters really gives birth to the letter after it. But some of them, we really see the interrelation more, more than others. So over here, this should at least give you a very clear picture of what the connection is between Aleph, Beis, Gimel, and Dalit. Any questions before um, we take leave of one another today? Beautiful idea. I hope that it was valuable, and I appreciate you coming on. And um, uh, yeah, if you if you if you enjoyed today, and you're thinking of any other people that might enjoy the series, they can still register. We have this whole thing recorded. I'll send it to them, and uh, would love to see more people on. And um, even if they can come on, already sending it out to so many people, so I'm happy to send it out to more, okay? Thank you all for joining today, and I wish you a good rest of the day. Bye.